experts in the realm of psychology and, and sociology have noted, for, particularly over the course of the last decade or so, that, that food fixation has become a new normal in American life, whether it's you know, the, the latest, most popular baking show or the newest diet fad or the hottest celebrity foodie. It's no secret that as a society, uh, we are obsessed with food. And, and the funny part is it actually extends to both ends of the spectrum because now the in, inordinate preoccupation with thoughts of food is not just a problem for the obese or slightly overweight, but now it can also manifest itself through the opposite vice of excessively counting calories or uh, fixating over organic foods to the point where you've been around somebody that like, looks down their nose at you if you would dare to eat something out of a package. <laughs> well, they don't come to our house. And the reason that both of those things are a problem is because both of those two extremes expose the same underlying idolatrous obsession, which is the golden calf of food. For some of us, it might be the golden arches. <laughs> but either way, it still raises the question of how should we as Christians think about food and how do we balance being good stewards of our body while not becoming self-righteously obsessed by a certain diet plan or, or pattern of eating. And, and the truth is, guys, that topic is way too broad to broach in one 25-minute sermon. Uh, but we are going to look at one particular element of it that our Lord speaks to as a part of our continuing look at his Sermon on the Mount. So remember, guys, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for like, I don't know how many weeks, but that's okay because there's a, a mountain of stuff to be drawn out of it. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading as I have been doing for the last many weeks, the first two verses of chapter 5. And then this week, our particular focus is going to be on chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. So if you open your Bibles with me, and please listen for the voice of the Spirit. So beginning in those first two verses of 5, uh, seeing the crowds, he, of course, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now jump to chapter 6, verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks for Let's pray. Gracious Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, it's a light to our path. And so give us now grace to receive your truth in faith and love. Strengthen us and feed us, Lord, to follow your spirit on this path that you've set before us through Christ our Lord. So, you know, when it when it comes to this this topic of, of fasting, it's, it's really kind of a usual subject, isn't it? Because I, I don't know about you guys, but I, just in, in my personal life, I rarely, if ever, have heard many sermons on it. Uh, because it's kind of a sensitive subject, right? There, there, there's something about the topic of Christian fasting that makes people defensive because we all like to eat, right? And, and if you do hear someone speak on the topic of fasting, you can never be quite sure where exactly they're going or what kind of guilt trip they may be trying to lay on you. So let me just, just put your mind at ease before we get too deep in the topic. Uh, I've got no hidden agenda this morning that I'm going to spring on you uh, to tell you that you are wrong if you do or that uh, you should start if you don't. 
I do, however, though, I do have an agenda. And that's to clarify the biblical teaching on fasting and then let you come to your own conclusion in your private, quiet times with the Lord. Because it's not my job to badger you into fasting. It's much more important that you understand why biblical saints in the past have fasted than it is for you just to kind of mechanically skip a few meals just so you can say that you've done it. Uh, and, and I think when you understand the principles behind fasting, you really have a better idea of how to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit regarding it in your own life and circumstances. So just to kind of kick it off, you probably already know that views about fasting usually go in one of two extremes. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, John Wesley once said, some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason, and others have utterly disregarded it. So, you know, of course, some consider fasting unnecessary and undesirable, and then, of course, something to be ignored. Uh, th there are other folks that think of fasting as an integral expression of their faith, like baptism or communion. So it's, it's a matter of intense disagreement in the church, mostly because it really touches on a matter that is very personal to us. Uh, now, of course, it's something we all have to have, but the truth is, for some people, food goes beyond that. Uh, many people are very dependent upon food as a means for dealing with anxiety and depression and boredom. So rather than eating to live, some people live to eat. And we have such a culture of food uh, in this country that one commentator said, in a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches, and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems to be out of place and out of step with the times. And I have to admit, I can, in some regards, see why. Uh, firstly, because fasting has developed a really bad reputation as a result of its excessive and overly dramatic practice by medieval monks and cult fanatics. Secondly, many people have simply concluded that fasting was just an Old Testament Jewish custom and therefore of no value in the church age. Uh, and third, I mean, most people, and especially me, uh, as I said, really like to eat. Uh, I, I may not need, but I do like to have three large meals a day and a variety of snacks in between. <laughs> Amen, somebody, right? Uh, but, but this morning as we approach this, because the Bible has so much to say about fasting, it's only right that we pause as a group of believers to consider what it means. And, and remember, my goal here today is not to raise diet, but it is to have us think biblically about fasting by looking at the topic in both the Old and the New Testament. So first, just briefly, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish Torah law had only one commanded fast, just one, and that's found in the book of Leviticus. All the other Old Testament fasts were voluntary, but God did give the people this one. This is in Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 29. The Bible says, on the 10th day, of the appointed month in early autumn, you must deny yourselves. Neither native or Israelites nor foreigners living among you may do any kind of work. This is a permanent law for you. On that day, offerings of purifications will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. It will be a Sabbath day of complete rest for you, and you must deny yourself. This is a permanent law for you. So, this one fast that was commanded by the law was to be observed on the, the tenth day of the seventh month, which is the day of atonement, which is, is Yom Kippur. The one day of the year that the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies 
sprinkled the sacrificial blood of the spotless lamb on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, prefiguring, of course, the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ would one day provide. And so you, you may, you know, at this point say, well, hey, Job, you know, since this commanded fast was directed to the nation of Israel, and since the Day of Atonement was fulfilled in Christ, we can just take the whole topic off the plate, yeah. pardon the pun, uh, and, and move on. But in addition to this one actual fast that was commanded, God's covenant people often fasted without specific command for a variety of reasons. Uh, and because it's important to consider the whole counsel of Scripture, I want to take just a brief look at why, why those people in the Old Testament fasted. Uh, and the short answer is voluntary fasting in the Old Testament expressed a serious and sorrowful seeking after God during painful circumstances. And just consider some of these illustrations. If you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, King David fasted for his dying child. Uh, in the book of Esther, in chapter 4, we read the Jews fasted when they were threatened with extermination at the hands of Haman. Uh, in the book of the prophet Jonah, chapter 3, the whole city of Nineveh fasted when Jonah pronounced judgment on them. And if you notice, the common thread from these examples is that those who were fasting were faced with the weighty circumstances of life and of death and of God's eminent judgment. And they were so concerned and conscious of their helplessness that they put off their normal eating habits to focus on seeking God instead, who alone could deliver them. So, so in other words, their fasting that they practiced just naturally flowed from a profound spiritual urgency. It wasn't, a, wasn't just a routine spiritual discipline, but it expressed a deep, Dependence on God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just like in Joel chapter 2, where we read beginning in verse 12. That's why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord. The Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not to punish. And so fasting, in, in this sense, becomes an outward expression of an inward reality of a changed heart. It becomes a, a, a fruit of sanctification. And this kind of Old Testament fasting really presupposes the spiritual realities of sin and of judgment but also of repentance and dependence on God. And in the text, God is telling the people not to pursue merely external fasting, like you know, abstaining from food or tearing your clothes. Don't do that without first having dealt with the more important internal spiritual reasons that you're prompted. So, so that tells me from this Old Testament perspective that we need to, to ask ourselves, do we wholeheartedly turn to God in the midst of our trials? Or do we surrender to fear and complain? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <coughs> so when sin creeps into our lives, do we repent or do we tolerate it? And do we seek to get out of our normal routine to root it out of our lives? When life gets tough, do we become confident in our own strength or do we recognize our need for the grace of God? And earnestly, do whatever it takes to seek after it as a priority. A priority higher than taking care of purely physical needs or just our 
self-promoting need for self-righteous acts of piety. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes this idea in Isaiah 58. This is God speaking. He says, tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to hear from me. We fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even seem to notice. And I'll tell you why God responds. He says, because you're fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourself by going through the motions of penance, bowing your head like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your goodness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And then when you call the Lord will answer, yes, I'm here. He will quickly reply. So you see these people in Isaiah's day complained they had fasted and God had not seen, but they had not been fasting for the right reasons or with the right motives. And God is saying through Isaiah, you really need to ask yourself the profound question of your relationship with God and with your neighbor before you worry about eating or not eating food. Because it's only when the heart is right with God that the external discipline of fasting has any value. So, so just from these few examples, right, no one could deny that God's Old Testament people practiced fasting. Right? Scripture, scripture makes that plain. Some did it the right way. Some did it the wrong way. But, but still, with all of that in mind, for most of us modern-day Christians, the primary question of fasting hinges more on, Old Testament, on New Testament teaching and practice. So I want to explore that just briefly for a minute. And, and at this point, you might counter with the idea that Fasting is too close to the mistaken notion that we can somehow earn our salvation or use it as a way of trying to garner praise or favor with God or praise in front of other people with such a pious act. Uh, and, and I'm sure there, there probably are some people that do that for that reason, that fast for that reason. In fact, I actually got accused of that once. Cindy, uh, do you remember Joe Holland at work? Well, I, I never forget when I, was, when I was still working with Cindy at Medco. I, I was scheduled to have a blood draw the next day for my cholesterol, and, and, and the friend that sat on the left side of me in the cubicle uh, offered me a donut after the time in the evening that I was allowed to, to eat anything, and, and I stupidly said, no thanks, I'm fasting. <laughs> now, now, of course, I, I meant the kind of fasting that you do before the blood draw, but my good buddy Joe on the other side, who, who was a pastor in training, sent me a really friendly text with a brotherly warning about not doing my religious acts for the praise of men and, and bragging about my fast, which I wasn't. But, but you, you get the point. But, but it's easy to dismiss fasting that way, right? Another, another easy way to dismiss whether we should or should not be fasting is, well, 
has a Roman Catholic thing. We're not Catholic. So, so it's not a part of our, our faith tradition. Well, not so fast. Because there are several other Reformed and Protestant Christian denominations that do have a tradition of fasting, right? Methodists, when they used to be something real, when they were still a church. Uh, Presbyterians, when they used to be a real church. Uh, Lutherans are still halfway there. Uh, but all of those faith groups ha have a, 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 a tradition of fasting, so that still leaves the question of what about us? What, why, why don't you and I, as an act of repentance or humility, deny ourselves some of the good things of life in order to better remember our Lord's suffering and death? Well, when it, when it comes to fasting, it seems like we Reformed Christians live in this kind of tension between guilt if we don't fast and fear of self-righteousness if we do. We're kind of stuck between the feeling that maybe we lack in piety if we don't or that we make an ostentatious display of piety if we do. So it's no wonder we don't talk about it much because it kind of feels like spiritual whiplash. But there are some things that we do know. We do know for sure that Jesus fasted after his baptism. We know that from Mark. Mark chapter uh, 4 tells us, beginning in verse 2, for 40 days and 40 nights, he, meaning Jesus, fasted and became very hungry. If you remember, that was toward the end of the time that Satan had tempted Jesus to end his hunger by turning those stones into bread when he was fasting. So uh, nothing in the New Testament then gives us reason to believe that Jesus abolished the Old Testament practice of fasting. He, he, he definitely wasn't opposed to the idea, let's say, right? But then if you look in Mark chapter 2, we see the occasion where the Bible tells us once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Now, if you or I would have maybe been in Jesus' place and hearing this accusation of him and of his men, he might have said, hey, uh, look, you want to talk about fasting? I, I just fasted for 40 days in the wilderness just like last month. So what do you think about that? But, but of course, uh, our Lord avoids seeking human honor for what he did before God in secret. And true to form, he answers the rabbi's question with another question. Jesus replies, do wedding guests fast when celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? The new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. Uh, besides, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins and the wine and the skins would be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. And so here Jesus defended his men on the grounds that wedding guests don't fast while the bridegroom is present. And you know, weddings, like even more than today, really were a big deal. They were a huge celebration, not just among the families involved, but in the whole community. Right? In, in Jewish culture, weddings were a big deal. Uh, and so was the food and the wine. And it would be unthinkable for a groomsman to fast during the wedding banquet. Right? It, it, it would have seemed like a statement of his dislike for the bride and would have been an insult to the groom. And, and these wedding feasts often lasted for seven full days and... Participants were expected to, to dress up and, and show up and to participate actively and, and joyfully. There's not a chance in the world that you could have gotten away without drinking a couple of toasts to the happy couple. 
In fact, if you remember, Jesus' first public miracle was supplying wine to a bride and groom that had run out. So, so here Jesus is saying that just as it would be impossible for a wedding attendant to fast at the reception, the same is true of his disciples as long as Jesus was in the world. But Jesus is doing something else here too, that something I don't want you to miss in his answer. Because he was trying to lead the men who were questioning him, and by extension you and I today, beyond just the mundane ideas of eating and drinking. Instead, what Jesus is doing is just exactly what the prophet Joel and the prophet Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets did, was get right to the literal heart of the matter. And so Jesus answers this question of fasting in the illustration of the wedding banquet to, to bring to mind the whole marriage covenant with all that it entails that God had made with his people on Mount Sinai. After he rescued them from slavery of marriage, covenant his people had neglected. And to drive his point home, Jesus is alluding to himself as the bridegroom. A, a remark that may be missed on you and I as Gentiles, but that would have been shocking in the extreme to the Pharisees because the Old Testament reserved the metaphor of the bridegroom to God alone. And here is Jesus attributing that title to himself, meaning the disciples' decision not to fast then was not due to a lack of piety or a rejection of the practice, it was rather a sign of Yahweh's presence and God's joyous breaking in of his kingdom into the world. And so you see, rather than limiting his answer to the pros and cons of external fasting, Jesus is telling us that, guys, that's not even the issue. The issue is not whether we do or whether we don't, but whether we pursue the kingdom of God. And each of us has to answer that question for themselves. Let's listen to how the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So after saying all that, where in the world does that leave us? Right. <laughs> what do you do with all that? Well, just by way of application, I believe uh, the evidence of Scripture points to the fact that fasting is clearly a private and voluntary practice. Uh, and the Lord made it pretty clear that it's something that should be done primarily in secret. So, so my job this morning is to inform you about it in a way that whether you do it or whether you don't do it, it still contributes to your spiritual growth. So if the Lord leads you to do it, fasting is a great way to humble yourself as a remembrance of how Jesus humbled himself on earth. It helps to remind us to observe the same priorities that our Lord displayed as he walked the way of the cross. Fasting can also intensify prayer. It can concentrate your attention on spiritual things. Fasting can teach us to propone, postpone, no, say that joke, three times fast, postpone self-gratification. And that's something that's super uncommon today, right? Our, our, our society teaches that instant gratification and the satisfaction of self is basically a human right, that, that we should live out our own truth, whatever that happens to be, whether it's indulging in premarital sex or racking up unfettered credit card debt or the delusion of transgenderism. But denial and delayed gratification, folks, are a key to both psychological and spiritual growth. And fasting can train us to say no to ourselves. And that's important. And just lastly, but maybe not least, fasting can help show solidarity with the world's hunger. You know, the truth is most of us throw away more food than families in the average country will ever see. 
Uh, and, and you know, as a practice in the first century church, when Christians fasted, they took the food that had not been eaten that day and gave it to the poor. And so if the Spirit leads you to do that, um, I encourage you to share from your pantry to our first Sunday food bank here every month. Uh, and if the Spirit leads you not to fast, that's okay too. But either way, take some time and get alone with God. Ask Him what He would have you do. <coughs> Remembering that as it says in the book of Romans, the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we do or don't eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And church, when that happens, whether our stomachs are full or whether they're empty, every day is a banquet. As Christ invites us to feast on his word, to feast on the bread of heaven and on the food of eternal life. So church, get in God's word today. Start today. If you don't know how to start and you don't know where to start, come see me or come, come see Brother Gary. But don't starve yourselves any longer. Repent and believe the gospel today in Jesus' name and be filled. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, your, your law is perfect, refreshing our souls. You give us joy in our hearts from it. You revive our strength like purest honey. So keep us, Father, from sin and give us wisdom, Lord, so to please you. Feed us this week, Lord, whether you call us to fast or not, but fill us with your precepts and with the will to obey them. We ask you, Father, to bring salvation to anyone today hearing this message, if they be unbeliever, or give correction and repentance to your elect. And all of this, Father, we ask for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, would you please stand before the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn? Well, let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered. 